0: Well, good morning, saints. It's a pleasure to bring you God's word this morning as we continue our worship of our our most high God. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I serve as one of the pastors here at Stafford Baptist Church. If I haven't had the pleasure of greeting you yet, I'd love to to meet you afterwards, so, so please find me. This morning, we continue our sermon series in Genesis, so please turn with me. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. We're moving along in our, uh, uh, in Moses' history of, of all creation and now the, the patriarchs, this history of, of God's people. We're now in, in the story of Abram, this, this nobody given God's great promises, empowered by great faith. Those promises and and Abram's faith were put to the test, and in our passage this morning, we're going to see Abram at at his very best. So Genesis chapter 14, blessed by the greater. Before we go any further, though, please join with me in praying once more for our our hearing and for the proclaiming of, of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we come to your word that you would show us yourself. Lord, as you gave to your, your, your chosen one, Abram, very great promises, Lord, we know that today we are sustained by your promises. Lord, that you reveal yourself to us not because of our deserving, but because you have promised to show yourself to those who seek you by faith. So, Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand this morning your word that we would see and rejoice in the beauty of Christ our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the year was 1998. The place, Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles, California. The event, a office Christmas party like many others happening in corporate buildings around the world, but this building houses a vault that contains millions in bonds, and those bonds are the target of the German terrorist, Hans Gruber. So on that fateful night, Hans and his cronies seize the building. Everyone inside is taken hostage. Everyone, including Holly McLean, wife of John McLean, the, the New York detective who happens to be arriving at the building at the very right moment. It's not a true story, fortunately. I'm summarizing the plot to the film that launched a franchise, Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis. It's the, the harrowing story of a, a gritty cop Facing overwhelming odds to rescue his wife and everyone else in the building from the clutches of evil men. I share that story because it's, it's likely the closest any of us has ever been to a, a hostage situation. Watching it unfold in the movies like Die Hard. but But pause the fact that it's fiction for a moment. Can you imagine what it would be like if it were really true and it's not holly in the building but but you and it's not john mclean coming to rescue but but one of your family members on the impossible mission to rescue you from evil men how would you feel Imagine the relief and joy you would feel when you're finally safe and free, unharmed. Honestly, it, it shouldn't be too hard for us to imagine. Yes, thankfully, I believe that none of us have ever been held hostage by German terrorists to be rescued by a, a lone family member. But, but there is a, a true story that many of us have experienced that, that might lead us to feel the same way that Holly felt when she was rescued. Each of us has been taken captive, not by foreign terrorists, but by our own sin. Every person by nature is is a captive, is slave to sin. We have all been in the clutches of our enemy, Satan. And we, we had no way of escaping on our own. Our only hope for was, was for someone else to pursue us and to rescue us from our captor. For a spiritual John McLean to defeat Satan and free us from the captivity of our sin. And the relief and joy that we feel when we are finally safe and free is real. Our passage this morning in Genesis 14 is a story of Abram at his best. Lot, his nephew, is captured by foreign armies. And Abram, like John McLean, makes a, a daring pursuit, overcoming impossible odds and rescuing his kin. Abram, on his victory tore back, is, is welcomed by, by kings and, and an unexpected priest of God Most High blesses him. But the passage is is much more than than a daring action story and the reward of victory. This is real history meant to prepare God's people and and us including for the true and final deliverer and high priest. Genesis 14 calls us to, to look for God's chosen one who will both deliver us from captivity and bless us as high priest. That will be our main idea this morning. Look for God's chosen one who will both deliver us from captivity and bless us as our high priest. Look for God's chosen one who will both deliver us from captivity and bless us as our high priest. This chapter, Genesis 14, is is history. God-ordained pattern for the eventual work of Jesus Who will pursue us and deliver us from our sin, and as our high priest, bless us with all the blessings of heaven. Look for God's chosen one who will both deliver us from captivity and bless us as our high priest. Now, since this passage that we're about to read has so many details, we're going to read it in two halves this morning. We'll start by reading verses 1 through 16 in our, our first point of victorious pursuit. And then later we'll read verses 17 through the end, through 24, and our, consider our second point, a heavenly blessing. So first, a victorious pursuit, and second, a heavenly blessing. And before we even start reading, I, I think it'll help us to be oriented a bit before we read, because these verses jump around in time and have lots of names of kings and places, uh, so it's, it's the account in the, the start of some international conflict, so if you look down in your Bibles just to, to what we're about to read verses 1 through 3 are the current situation but then Moses goes in verses 4 through 7 to recount some history to explain how we got here and then Mo- Moses gets back to the the story in verses in verse 8 and following and talks about how it unfolds so we're going to be jumping around in history so so with that in mind let's let's read God's word in Genesis starting in verse, chapter 14, starting verse 1, and think about our first point of victorious pursuit. Let's read. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goen, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, King of Adma, Shimaber, king of Zeb- Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim and Ham, and the Emon, and Shavah Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of, of Seir, as far as El Perim, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazaz, Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskal and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them. And went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his force against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. The word of the Lord. Well, here we have, in Genesis 14, the first and only account of international military campaigns in the book of Genesis. But but Moses' point here isn't to recount geopolitical history for us. His interest is in in Abram, the object of God's grace, the recipient of God's very great promises. But Abram doesn't show up halfway through, until halfway through the verses we read in verse 13. Verse 13. So, we're going to take a tour of the first half of these verses. What, what brings us to Abram in verse 13? Well, look again with me at, at verse 1. Verses 1 and 2 list nine kings total who are lining up for war in verse 3 in the, the valley of Siddim. Here in, in verse 1, we have four kings, Amraphel, Arioch, Chedorlaomer, and Tidal. We, we can't call these the bad guys because all the kings in this chapter pretty much are, are bad guys. But, but this is the invading army, the, the enemy. So we'll call them the kings of the east. These are the, the non-Canaanite kings of the chapter. And, and when you think of these kings, you should think less like Napoleon or Alexander the Great and more like something like pirate warlords. They don't rule empires as we think of them. They don't have nations. They rule cities and, and warring tribes. I think maybe the only name you might recognize there in verse 1 is where Amraphel is from. He is king of, of Shinar. You might remember Shinar from chapter 11, right? Shinar is the plain where, where the people built the Tower of, of Babel. It's also the land of, of the kingdom of, of Nimrod, of, of chapter 10, the one who is described as the first on the earth to be a mighty man. So we know their, their pedigree. Moses goes on in, in verse 2 to list the local bad guys, these five kings. He says, Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemeber, and Bela, the king of Balaam. Now, you don't need to remember these names. There will be no quiz on it. Just that these five, these local kings, are the kings of the Jordan Valley, the ones who are going to be invaded by the four of verse 1. I think you'll recognize some of these kingdoms. In verse 2, Sodom and Gomorrah, these are the cities where Lot settled in our study last week. Remember, they're described in Genesis 13, 13 as, as wicked Great sinners against the Lord. Bad guys on both sides. In verse 3, it says that these, these joined forces in the Valley of Sidon, they're lined up for battle. The four against five in the, the Salt Sea. East versus the kings of the Jordan Valley. Now, here in verse 4 is is when we have to follow the timeline carefully. In verse 4, Moses jumps back in time, 14 years, to give us some context. Why in the world are these nine kings fighting? Why should we be interested in all these details and names? Well, Moses goes back. Verse 4, he mentions that for 12 years, these local kings... The kings of verse 2 have been subject to, to Ched or Make it simple, we'll call him King Ched, right? He must have defeated these, these five kings and, and made them pay tribute. But at the end of verse 4, we have, have the 13th year. You see it there. They decided to rebel against King Ched. Well, he can't stand that, right? In verse 5, in the 14th year, King Ched and his cronies there on the march. So in in verses 5 through 7, we have have more of recent past, a list of all their victories on their way to the Jordan Valley. As we read there, we saw that they defeated six tribes on their way. And these tribes that they defeat are are no slouches. The first one listed there in in verse 5, the Rephaim, in Ashtaroth-Keranaim, they're, they're described in the first chapters of Deuteronomy. Moses calls them a people great and many, as tall as the Anakin. In other words, they're, they're giants. One of these, these people of Rephaim, called Og, had a bed made of iron that was 13 feet long. And these kings of the east walk right through them without a problem. Well, all that history brings us back to to where we started. Verse 8 is recounting what he already told us in verses 1 through 3. Are are you still with me? Okay. Verses 8 and 9, we have a restatement of what we saw in verses 1 through 3. The nine kings lining up for battle in this valley of Siddam. So after, after Moses' history lesson in these verses, you might be expecting the outcome of the battle, right? Utter defeat for the rebelling kings of the Jordan Valley. These invading kings are unstoppable, and that's exactly what happens immediately in verse 10. Right? They flee. They, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah don't even put up a fight. The land he describes has has these pits, tar pits, thick pools of, of evaporating crude oil, sticky traps of, of death. So some fall in and, and die, others flee to the, the hills. Utter and embarrassing defeat for these kings of the Jordan Valley. It wasn't even a, a contest. So in verse eleven, as we continue on, the, the enemies take their, their prize. The invading army, the kings of the west, take all the possessions of the city of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and they, they leave. Now, the long story short, big baddies with a trail of blood have come and crushed some rebels. All that history of, of military conquest brings us, us here in, in verse 12 where the story gets local. We see immediately it's it's. Importance, its relevance, its urgency. Verse twelve. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Notice, Lot is no longer among them in his tent, but but living in their city. We don't get the gruesome details here, but. But we have to get into Lot's shoes. It might be easy for us to to read this story as detached observers. But imagine what it was like for Lot and his family. Something like Die Hard, but with ancient tech. When we read between the lines, we realize that, that Lot has seen agonizing death and brutality in the wake of this defeat. Perhaps he's lost loved ones, neighbors, business partners. He is now captive to a foreign invader as their prisoner, trudging across the land, leaving home behind with all his hopes lost. Can you imagine how Lot must feel? He's as good as dead. But the story, the story takes a hopeful turn in verse 13. John McLean is in the building. The the tiniest thread of hope connecting defeat to rescue. One solitary person escapes and finds Abram the Hebrew living in Canaan. He has some allies there, Mamre, Eskel, and Aner. And when Abram hears it, That his nephew, Lot, has been taken captive, he rallies his men. Apparently, the the male and female servants, the the wealth, the herds, the herdsmen that he received in Egypt has has only grown in his time in Canaan. Here he has a band of 318 trained men ready for war. And even though Abram is, is indispensable. To God's plan, that, that he has to live in order to have an heir. He goes on this mission in pursuit of his nephew Lot. He's something like I understand General James Mattis to be, who is who's often on the, the front line in battle, getting shot at. Not back with senior leadership in HQ. We're seeing Abram here at his best with plenty to fear, but trusting. That God will providentially protect those who will inherit his promises. So Abram, in faith with his men, head north in pursuit of Lot. When they catch up more than a hundred miles north of the Oaks of Mamre, they they ambush the, the four kings of the east at night, dividing their forces. And remember what they're about to do, right? This, this army that they're about to fight has defeated six tribes on the way to defeat an army of five kings, a force that has conquered giants. I think Moses has, has carefully chronicled King Ched's conquests to point out how amazing verse 15 is. He and his servants defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. By God's power, Abram brings victory. Abram rescues all the possessions that this army has stolen, but most importantly, Lot, his nephew, and the women and people are all rescued and brought back safely. Certainly, as we read this, we have to conclude that this is God's faithfulness to Abram. Abram is no military genius, trained in the arts of war from his youth. We have to remember God's promise. God's promise to bless him and to, through Abram, to bless all the families of the earth. Chapter after chapter of Genesis is the story of, of how the promises of God to Abram are coming to pass. Think of of all the families with Lot who are are blessed here by Abram's victory. The whole Bible is the record of of God being faithful to his promises and the blessings that flow out of him because of it. But this, this story is not just another notch in the belt of God's faithfulness, as, as good enough as that is. In, in fact, this is God acting in history to establish a pattern of how he saves. Let me, let me tell you this story again with, with a bit of emphasis. This is the story of Lot, allured by the false beauty of sin and now suffering its consequences, defeated and captive to a power he could not overcome. But God, in love, chose his cho- sent his chosen man to pursue Lot, not because Lot deserved it, to bring victory out of defeat and to rescue him from his captivity to evil. Does that sound familiar to you? I hope. As Abram was to Lot, so Christ is to us. Jesus did not sit idly by in heaven waiting for us to deserve redemption. Neither was our redemption painless. Christ left the glories of heaven to come after us. And in his pursuit of us, Jesus destroyed the powers of sin and Satan that held us captive. And as victor, led us home. Safe, unharmed. Of course, Jesus' victory is is spiritual. His victory is is not by the sword, but, but by taking in Himself the sword of God's wrath against our sin. On the cross, our sins were placed on Jesus, our Savior, so that He suffered what our sins deserve. And three days later, He was raised from the dead, pulling victory out of defeat. Speaking of evil, demonic powers, Colossians two thirteen through 15 puts it this way. Paul writes, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death, debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has triumphed over sin and Satan not only in Abram but in Jesus Christ so that we, like Lot, are rescued by him. When we read Genesis 14, we are not reading prophecy of Jesus Christ clear predictions of his life and work like Micah 5.2 that says Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. No, what, what we read isn't prophecy but what we call typology. Typology. The word type comes from the Greek word typos which means figure or symbol. God promises Jesus not just with prophecy but with other people and events that, that prefigure him. Literary prototypes. David Murray defines types this way. Uh, type is a real person, place, object, or event that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. You can think of it this way. If prophecy is prediction in words, typology is prophecy in picture, prediction in picture. An, an easy example of typology might be the, the sacrifice of the, the Passover lamb. You, you know the story, right? A lamb without blemish, sacrificed and eaten, its, its blood put on the doorpost to protect from God's destroying angel. Well, it's not a prophecy, right? It's a real event, But what we have in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb is is a picture of, of Jesus, the lamb of God, perfect in righteousness, who is sacrificed at the Passover and received, eaten by faith, whose blood shelters us from God's wrath. So, just like the Passover lamb, Abram here in Genesis 14 is a type of Christ. Genesis 14 is real history ordained by God to resemble Jesus' person and work, the one who will come to deliver us from our spiritual captivity. Because being, being rescued from foreign enemies is not enough. We need a, a greater deliverance. Brothers and sisters, when, when we read this story... Who did you identify with? Abram, the conquering hero, or Lot, settled in sin, captive, in need of rescue. The truth is that we're less like Abram and more like Lot, in need of rescue. If you're joining with us this morning and, and don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, let me thank you for joining with us this morning. Maybe this talk of captivity to sin sounds weird. Jesus teaches in John eight thirty four: everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Yes, it's, it's our choice to sin, but, but we are imprisoned by our choice. We are unable to escape from sin without help, without the help of Jesus, who is the only one who can set us free. Just like Lot, we can't free ourselves. Contrary to the popular slogan, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. Apart from him, we can do nothing One of the clearest passages in the Bible on our our slavery to sin and how we can be freed by the death of Jesus is found in Romans chapter 6. I think it'd be a great idea for all of us to take some time this afternoon or or later this week to to read Romans 6 and to consider what it, it means for us to be freed by Jesus from sin. Maybe take some mental notes and and share what you've noticed with with your spouse or or a family member or another member of this church. And in turn, ask them what they've noticed as they've read Romans 6. But but even more than reading Romans 6, I think this picture of, of Abram like Jesus should be an encouragement to us in our evangelism. The fact is that no one no one is too far in sin to not be saved. Consider again how hopeless it seemed for Lot. Hundreds of miles away, in the captivity of an armor army that's that's everything in their way. What hope would he have of rescue? But God's power and grace reaches even Lot. Who, who do you assume is too far gone in sin to be saved? They're not. The God that can rescue Lot can rescue any sinner from the captivity of their sin. And it's not up to our power. We are not the John McLean of spiritual captivity. We don't save people. We just tell people how they can be saved. Like, like Moses is doing as he tells us this story. Jesus is the Abram whose sp- pursuit of spiritual hostages can save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You don't need any special, special qualifications or, or training to be a faithful evangelist. You just need to know that you were once a slave of sin and that the way you found freedom was by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But but friends, this this is only half the picture. Only half of how Genesis 14 teaches us to look for Jesus. We're to look for God's chosen one who will both deliver us from captivity and bless us as our high priest, so we need to continue reading in, in chapter 14 in verses 17 through 24, and, and move to our second point, a heavenly blessing. In our next verses, Abram is going to be greeted by two kings at his return. And as we read, I want you to notice, notice how different these two respond to him. We're going to read Genesis 14, starting in 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is the valley, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. The word the Lord. You will remember us reading about one of these kings, Melchizedek, in our scripture reading earlier in our service in, in Hebrews chapter 7. With Genesis 14 filled with obscure kings, it's, it's surprising for us that, that one of them should become the, the center of an argument about Jesus in the New Testament. So let's see, what does Genesis 14 teach about this Melchizedek? Well, in in verse 17, one of these defeated kings comes out to meet Abram, the king of Sodom, call him Bera. In verse 18, another king, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes out as as well. This this king, Melchizedek, was not among the kings that that fought and and was defeated earlier. He is the king of, of Salem which is understood to be the the same city as Jerusalem. And this king of Salem brings out bread and wine, nourishment for the returning victor. And there at the end of verse 18, Moses lets us in on the key to who this king is and and why, with no dog in the fight, he comes out to to meet Abram. He says, Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High, the God who has made promises to, to Abram, the one true God, Yahweh. As far as we know, at this place in history, this is the only person outside of, of Abram's family that, that knows and, and worships God, though the hope may suspect more. Verse 18 is also the, the first time in the Bible that the word priest is used. Uh, a priest is someone who acts as an intermediary between God and man. Later, we'll see them making sacrifices and and prayers on on people's behalf toward God and teaching and and blessing the people on God's behalf toward the people. A priest as intermediary between God and man blesses, as Melchizedek does here, both Abram and God. In verse 19, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This blessing is an announcement of, of God's favor for Abram and praise and thanks to God. Here, Melchizedek recognizes that, that God owns everything. Everything. He says, possessor of heaven and earth. The God that that Abram and Melchizedek serve is not some tribal deity. No, he is the creator of everything. It says, Psalm 97, 9 puts it. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Brothers and sisters, our God is not just a more powerful version of us. He is completely unique, holy, and set apart. He is the Most High God. Melchizedek also recognizes that that Abram's victory and the praise do not belong to him, but to the Most High God. It was he who delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. So, oh, brothers and sisters, in, in all of our success, thanks belongs to God. For his his part there in verse 20, Abram defers to this priest. As great as this patriarch is, uniquely the recipient of, of God's very great promises, Abram gives to Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils, a, a tithe offering to the priest in response of, of worship and thanksgiving to the God of that priest. Well, we have much more to say about Melchizedek, but, but first his, his contrast. After this interaction well, with Melchizedek, in verse 21, we, we see how Sodom, the king of Sodom interacts with Abram. Well, first we notice that this king offers no gratitude, even though his city had been ransacked and, and only rescued and recovered thanks to Abram. But there in verse 20, he he makes a handsome and and business-like offer. Give me the people, but you can keep all the goods. Quite the prize for Abram. Well, in verse 22 through the end, we have Abram's response. And I think we should see it as a response of faith. Abram refuses the spoils and does so because he has pledged to God to not take the tiniest thread so that, so that no man can say that they have made Abram rich. He takes only what the men have eaten and the share for his allies, but nothing, nothing at all for Abram. This is a response of faith. Who will Abram trust to be his benefactor When the choice is between the blessings of God offered by Melchizedek or the riches of the world offered by Sodom, Abram's choice is to cling to God by faith. Without faith, this this choice seems foolish. But with faith, faith, the choice is obvious. This is the same kind of faith that we saw in, in Abram last week. Faith that is the ability to give God control. I am, I'm sure, brothers and sisters, that you can all think of ways that you would do things differently if you had control of your life. Whatever it is that you're thinking of, that, that is where God is calling you to live by faith. To trust Him and His wise works far beyond our counsel. Even when we don't understand, faith trusts. Will you, like Abram, trust him that the blessings of God are better than what the world offers? Well, I said we'd get back to Melchizedek. He is an eddingmanic figure here for three verses, then, then gone again. But then, writing a thousand years later, his name shows up again in the Bible, in the writings of another king of Jerusalem, King David, writing Psalm 110. I don't know if you knew this, but but the first verse of Psalm 110 is is the New Testament's most quoted verse from the Old Testament. And and verse 4 of that psalm gets a whole chapter of commentary in Hebrews 7. This psalm has has great credentials. When Jesus quoted Psalm 110, he says that David was speaking in the Holy Spirit. And as David did, he saw God speaking to his Lord, a, a conversation between two people. But who is this Lord that David saw? Well, in Psalm 110, God promises this Lord that he will rule with a scepter. Sounds like a king. And then finally, in in verse 4, he says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Now this, this is amazing. Surely David had read of his predecessor, king of Salem, in Genesis 14. But now, a thousand years later, in the Holy Spirit... David sees God making an oath to this Lord, David's Lord, to make him a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I I think this is something like being in an escape room where the tiniest detail that you might hardly notice becomes the key to unlocking all of it. Unfortunately, we don't have to wonder what Psalm 110 meant The heart of the letter to the Hebrews, all of chapters 4 through 7, are are all about how Jesus is our high priest. And when the author wants to argue for that, he uses Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 to to show us that that Jesus is David's Lord, who is the priest like Melchizedek. If you're keeping count, yes, our passage has not one but, but two Types of Christ. As Abraham was to Lot, so is Christ to us as deliverer. Now, as Melchizedek was to Abram, so is Christ to us as our priest. Melchizedek. Another prediction by pictures. If you read through Hebrews, it draws out so much from these three verses. That letter calls Jesus King of Salem, which means King of Peace. Melchizedek's name also means King of Righteousness, another title for Jesus. Melchizedek in in Genesis 14 has no record of of birth and death, but seems to live forever. So Hebrews 7 says that Jesus continues as priest forever. All this and more to say that, that Melchizedek's significance far outweighs these few verses he gets here in Genesis 14. Just like the old covenant, the new covenant needed a priesthood. And Jesus was not from the house of Levi, the priests of the old covenant. So when God gives to his people a better covenant, we also get a better priesthood in Christ. Not the family of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. Brothers and sisters, the, the point, you have a high priest, an intermediary between God and man far better than all other priests. He, like this picture in Genesis 14, is a king of peace and king of righteousness. This priest is not prevented by death from continuing in office and consequently can save us to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. We have what Hebrews calls a better hope. We have all the blessings of heaven by faith because of Jesus' work as our priest, not offering up the the blood of bulls and goats, but but offering his own blood and so securing eternal redemption. Redemption. As great as the patriarch Abram was, he was not the chosen one to deliver us from our captivity and bless us as our high priest. In fact, in addition to Abram and Melchizedek, the Old Testament is filled with type after type of Christ in kings and priests, but but also in prophets, in, in temples, in sacrifices, in manna from heaven, on and on. Friends, our Christ is such a deliverer and priest that it took dozens and dozens of pictures to fell out even a part of what he would be like. All find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's like the many faces of a cut diamond combined into the perfection of the gem. As Jonathan Edwards put it, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. As great as Abram, as great as Melchizedek, as great as all the types of the Old Testament, fulfilled in this one man. Stafford Baptist, there is no other place where heavenly blessings come. Jesus Christ is now the one mediator between God and man. And in in fact, the Bible teaches that that all believers are are now priests because all believers are now united to Christ and in Him have access to the Father. We now mediate God's blessings to one another and to the world in Christ. All the, the riches of heavenly blessings... Forgiveness, adoption, eternal life are available to us by faith in our high priest, Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, hear the call of Genesis 14 this morning. To look to God's chosen one who will both deliver us from captivity and bless us as our high priest. The better Abram, the better Melchizedek has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All the hopes and expectations of the Old Testament are met in Him. So it is our joy this morning to look to Him with faith to deliver us from our captivity to sin and to bless us in the name of our Most High God. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would look through Abram and through Melchizedek to see the conquering hero and high priest of our most high God, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for for delivering us from our sin. Lord, as hopeless as we were, in captivity, without the ability to save ourselves, to pursue us and deliver us from our enemy, Satan and sin. Lord, to lead us home as victor Lord, to be blessed by our high priest, who always lives, to make intercession for us, that we would be saved to the uttermost. Lord, it is to Christ that we look in faith this morning and pray that we would go and tell others likewise of this conquering hero and high priest of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen.